All right, we're gonna we're gonna get back to it. I hope you're not only informed and equipped by Mark's exposition on the reliability of Scripture, but encouraged that our faith in the Bible as God's word actually makes sense. That the trust we give it by faith is also reasonable and defendable. Pardon me, well, I'll try to attach this to my shirt. Okay, I know it's going to fall off about eight times, so we'll just deal with it. Um, you know, we're li- we kind of live in an age of biblical illiteracy, not just, you know, in the secular world, but it, it, it's kind of a problem in the church sometimes. Um, so I hope that we would be more motivated by what we've heard tonight to, as Mark put it, read it, believe it, and practice it, the Word of God. Learn and grow together, you know, on this uh, faith that we are learning to defend. By the way, has anyone ever heard anyone say, okay, defend the existence of God to me without using the Bible? No? No, really? You have, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's something many of us have heard, and it sounds like actually a good idea. Like, yeah, I'll take, the, I'll take that challenge. Don't. It's dumb. Um, we're giving away what we're trying to prove. So we've already lost the argument when we agreed to do that. And, you know, just try telling a secularist, don't use any of your secular's resources to, to uh, demonstrate secularism. How old is the earth? How big is the flood? And maybe the most important question uh, on this topic is how much does it matter? Is because there, there are implications to how old you think the earth is and how we look at the Bible and how we see it telling us that information. There's so many ways to go here. This is going to delve into, into creation. There's basically two camps of belief as far as the age of the earth. There's young earth creationism, YEC for short, and old earth creationism. And so we're just going to define these a little bit. In short, uh, young earth creationists believe that the universe, earth and life uh, and everything basically was created six to 10,000 years ago. Young Earth creationists will kind of stick to the 6,000-year side of that range and that uh, creation was, was done in six literal days, over the course of six days. Old Earth creationism uh, has the universe created 14, about 14 billion years ago, and the Earth in our solar system was created about 4.5 billion years ago, and these dates coincide pretty well with secular mainstream scientific conclusions that you'll find in most of your science textbooks. Uh, and also that mankind was created, you know, I wasn't quite sure what to put for the range here because it's all over the board. Uh, seems to be about 30 to 40,000 years ago for the development of what we consider Adam and Eve through a process of God-directed evolution or theistic evolution or progressive creationism uh, evolutionary creationism, lots of different terms to indicate that God had some kind of design or, or hand in guiding the evolutionary process to give us human beings uh, over the development over millions of years of, of life on earth. I've heard it maybe the high end about 200,000 years ago. I've also heard 6,000 years ago for a actual Adam and Eve. So how the theory goes is mankind or the great apes developed through evolution, and God entered into their sphere, breathed the breath of life into man, gave him a soul and a spirit, and he was then made in the image of God, and this was Adam and Eve. 
There's also some theories that Adam and Eve were not actual, literal human beings. They are figurative beings that represent a small population that God chose to enter a relationship in, and we are the descendants of that group. So, as I said, there's, there's lots, of different, lots of different views in old earth creationism. What both sides do agree on is that God created everything ex nihilo, out of nothing. They just disagree on how. As disclosure, I'm a young earth creationist. I think I should have asked this, but I think most of our leadership here um, probably is. Uh, so I'll be kind of approaching this from a young earth creationist viewpoint and discussing some arguments both ways uh, regarding that. Some notable Christian old earth creationists. Uh, Chuck Colson is among them, J.I. Packer, uh, Norman Geisler, and I believe Hank Hanegraaff heard much about, they are at least open to an old earth. Maybe they haven't decided, but they're open to it. And uh, I think that's where a lot of people are. They haven't decided. They haven't really looked into it too much and maybe are afraid to decide because this is a fairly contentious debate within Christianity, uh, which within our own sphere here. So you, yes, you can believe in an old earth or a young earth and, and be a Christian, although your mansion is going to be bigger if you believe in a young earth. Um, it's just a joke. Okay, so why I hold a young earth position? Uh, I consider myself at least open to persuasion on it, but I'm pretty firmly young earth creation. Why, the reasons why I am is that from a straightforward reading of the book of Genesis and the rest of the Bible, creation appears to be young. So you have in Genesis 1, there's the description of God's creation of the earth over six literal 24-hour days, which seem to be 24-hour days. And I say from a straightforward reading because I think that's how we need to approach reading the Bible. I don't think it's something that's written in code or we need to decode in any way. I believe God gave us this message for us to understand. So at least um, when we begin our study, we, we take a plain reading of the Bible. We just open it up and read it just like you would any other book. Of course, we get into lexicons and commentaries when we get into deeper study, but first step is we read it. And from a first reading, it seems to be not a day-age day, which is where the day can be any number of years. It's a literal 24-hour day. And so the Hebrew word for day, which is yom, when it's paired with a number, anywhere else in scripture means a literal 24-hour period. Uh, you've heard uh, uh, Psalm 90, I believe, that says the day is as a thousand years. That's a different use of the word day. It's not designated by a number right next to it. We say back in the day, we used to wear fanny packs. Okay, that's not one day. It's a long period of time, unfortunately. There's a designation of a period of time. But in this use, number with a day means a literal 24-hour day. We also note in, in uh, Genesis 1 that days had an evening and a morning. There was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening and there was morning the second day. The evening and morning, that inclusion is an odd thing for any kind of day-age view where that's an era and not an actual day, which have characteristically a evening and a morning. Now, this was something I really wanted to, I mean, we could spend a lot of time on this, but out of concern for time, I made myself edit this, at least to abbreviate. The genealogies in the Bible is very interesting and very fun. But it's the parts of the scripture where you usually skip over. And you'll notice that we uh, 
uh, there's several genealogies in Genesis 4, 5, and, tw and 11, actually, I corrected that on your handout, that uh, we never covered in our series here at Creekside on Genesis. So it's hard to kind of see the importance of genealogies in Scripture, but I'll kind of gloss over this a little bit and, and just uh, let you know that genealogies have a little bit of a different purpose in Scripture than they do in our contemporary view of them. We typically want to know details about everybody in our family tree, when they were uh, living and when they died and so forth. Genealogies in scripture, their purpose was more religious. There was more uh, legal purposes for them in connecting a person to an inheritance and so forth. In most of the genealogies in scriptures, and the one in Genesis 5 and 11, have ages attached to them, age of a person, when they fathered the next generation, as well as the name. So it's, it's easy to link those and create a timeline of literal years of, of from Adam all the way to Abraham using those genealogies. The rest of the genealogies in scripture, as far as I know, don't have ages of, of the names listed. So there's the idea that there could be many missing, but I don't think that there could be very many names missing because there's room for maybe a couple of hundred years, comparing them and what we know about the names that are including in them. So in short, that's to say you can't add you can't add thousands of years or too many thousands of years to genealogies by exploring the gaps that were in the genealogies uh, in scripture. So it still kind of holds the timeline, the literal timeline of, the, of human history to a few thousand years. And well, this is looking at Old Testament um, testimony. Adam's sin brought death according to Romans 5. And uh, this brings into the picture some rather significant implications theologically if Adam and Eve were evolved creatures following millions of years of evolution, which means millions of years of death. And Adam's sin is the cause of death from what we read in Genesis and in Romans, which basically puts the effect after the cause. Now, there's some, some responses to this from an old birth perspective. The death being referred to here was not physical death, it was only spiritual death. I think that's kind of a hard sell considering that Romans 5 compares the physical death of Christ to Adam's situation. And so one would think that there's a comparison to the physical death as far as the effects from his sin. So there's some New Testament evidence that I consider actually a little bit more compelling than, um, or just as compelling anyway, as the Old Testament testimony. And we'll be looking at four statements three from Jesus and one from Paul. Adam and Eve were created from the beginning of creation according to Matthew 19.4 and Mark 10.6. And these verses in full are, and he answered them, and this is Jesus answering, fielding a question about divorce and marriage. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And as Mark 10.6 puts it, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. And I've developed a chart. Um, on top is represented a young, young earth creationist view. If Adam and Eve were indeed created on day six, literal day six of creation, that would be naturally considered the beginning of thousands of years of earth history. And Jesus is making this statement in 30 AD. Um, so that makes sense. At the beginning of creation makes sense in that context. Uh, 
uh, if you consider on the bottom an old Earth view, Earth was created billions of years of uh, geologic evolution, millions of years of life evolving into the creation or instatement of Adam and Eve only a few thousand years before Jesus is making this statement. So really this is Adam and Eve were created in recent history according to an old, old Earth perspective. So at the beginning of creation, or as he says, uh, in the beginning, doesn't make sense in reference to Adam and Eve on an old earth view. Um, the best explanation I've heard in response to this was that Jesus was wrong, and I wouldn't call that a good explanation. I don't, I'm not prepared to say Jesus, uh, who had a hand in creation, was wrong about when it was in relation to the history of man. Another statement from Christ was uh, in, in Mark 13, verse 19, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. So in context, and maybe this is a good time to interject a little thing about context. Context is critical when you are interpreting scripture. You don't take a page out of the middle of a novel and expect to understand what's going on. So you really don't want to take a page out of the middle of, out of, the middle of a book in scripture and expect to know everything that's going on. You want to consider the verses before and after, read the whole chapter, um, get a sense of the historical backdrop and the um, cultural background as well. Um, so that the context here is Jesus talking about end times. And in reference to the tribulation, he compares trials that humans haven't endured or haven't experienced since the beginning of creation. And he's talking about you know, when suffering began on basically an Adam's day. Uh, in the next passage, which actually Mark mentioned in the last hour, uh, Luke 11, uh, starting in 50, verse 50, Therefore this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. So referring to Cain's murder of Abel, this is blood that's been shed since the foundation of the world, which is the first generation from Adam. So we're very close to the beginning, again, not following millions of years of evolution or billions of years of earth history. And lastly, Paul in Romans 1.20 makes reference to man seeing God's work since the beginning of the world. Uh, I'll read it. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. It seems that Paul is assuming, as Jesus did, that men were around at the beginning of creation to witness creation. And none of this is actually Jesus or Paul trying to teach a science lesson. In fact, the Bible, I wouldn't consider the Bible a science book insofar that you know, it's not intended solely to teach us science like the, the biology book that Alexis probably turned in recently. It's not the same kind of thing. But from what Jesus and Paul seem to be assuming in their regular conversation, they're taking for granted that human history began at the beginning of Earth history. In other words, the creation of the universe and the Earth. Um, so we kind of see that assumption in their speech. They're presuming what seems to be a young Earth position. So I guess I have a hard time seeing an old Earth view based on that. Next issue. How big was the flood? Also a kind of intramural debate in Christianity, um, as well as Christianity versus uh, you know, some secular worldviews too that hold to a local flood versus a global flood. 
So just to kind of outline the debate, a global flood proponents insist that the flood covered the earth as um, Genesis seems to describe. And a local or regional flood is a flood believed to be in the area where most or all of the population of the world was believed to have lived, which is basically Iraq and surrounding areas. You've got a, probably a better map on your handout. It's got a mountain range to the north and a higher plains to the south, and then the Persian Gulf to the east, the Mediterranean Sea to the west. You can't see there, but forming kind of a nice little puddle opportunity for a flood. And there's flood evidence here as well as other places in the world, but local or regional flood proponents would say this accounts for all the flood legends we have uh, because it effectively would have killed everybody that would have been alive on the earth. And um, looking at the world map here, it's a pretty small area compared to the rest of the world. Um, but this is an area known as the Mesopotamian Plains or Mesopotamia. Okay, well, we'll go back in the scripture, what the Bible says about the flood. Uh, the waters rose greatly on the earth, and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. This is Genesis 7, 18 and 19. And Genesis 8, 9 says there was water over all the surface of the earth. So this will be the extent of our Hebrew lesson tonight. Uh, the Hebrew word for earth, I don't know how you pronounce this, Eretz perhaps, can also mean territory or your world, your, you know, or sphere of existence versus a literal planet. I guess with uh, the question comes when you're when you're looking at interpreting day as a as a day age as a uh, eon of time or as an, an undescribed amount of time versus a day or Earth as a literal Earth versus just a local area. I think the question needs to come up: Why are we assume Why are we taking one translation over another, and are we assuming something? In, in accepting uh, a, an alternative definition other than the one that seems to be more obvious or more common. Um, something called Occam's razor or the law of parsimony says that in the absence of further evidence, the simplest answer, meaning the one that makes the least number of assumptions, is probably the correct one, usually. And this ought to be helpful when choosing between different available word meanings so some specific problems with the idea of a local flood that um, I've used in some debates, practical, pragmatic reasons why I, I think it's, it's probably a it has to be a global flood. Uh, first one is there's no reason to save the animals, in my view, uh, to build this uh, very large ark big enough to accommodate Noah's family and two of every animal kind, every land and bird animal kind that God sent to Noah to save. You would assume that was because there were going to be wiped out if they were lost in the flood. And if you've got a local or regional flood, it seems to me that those animal populations could be replenished from outside the flood zone later on. Uh, so there doesn't seem to be a need for such a big ark in all of the inclusion of all the animals. There also doesn't seem to be a very good reason for 120 years of warning that the world had before the flood, which renders uh, the, your first blank there is God's judgment seems to be inadequate then. In Genesis 6.3, it describes 120 years of warning. And uh, if the flood is avoidable by moving outside of the flood zone, that's not a very thorough judgment on God's part if it's escapable. Also, we recognize the ark as a picture, as a symbol of God's salvation. And 
a local flood would provide many ways of salvation. You could escape to the mountains to the north or climb to higher ground to the south. You had 120 years to do this. Uh, there's really no excuse to be drowning in a local flood even of this size if you have 120 years. Uh, of course, we know that Christ is the only way to salvation is what Christianity teaches. So this isn't a very good parallel to uh, Christ if there's other ways. And the Bible tells us there was either 366 days, I believe, they were on board the ark, about a year, which seems like a long time if you're talking about a local flood. And uh, Genesis 8.4 says that the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, so not at the foothills of Ararat or in the mountains, but on the mountains. And it seems logical to assume that if you're going to land on a mountain, you need to be first afloat above the mountains as the Bible seems to describe. So finally, how much does this debate matter? Okay, obviously we can get to heaven no matter what we think about the scope of the flood or how old the earth is. Uh, so I would say it's not a gospel issue. It doesn't affect our salvation, but it can be an issue of authority. So then this brings questions into the debate. Do we accept man's word over God's word? And it could also be an inerrancy issue. Do we believe that God's word is truly without error? And these are all personal questions uh, that I think we need to ask when you have a, a view of an older earth or um, a local flood. And it could be an exegetical issue, a matter of exegesis, which is science of interpretation. If we interpret Genesis as allegory, how do we view the gospel, for example? How do we view the rest of scripture? If Adam and Eve were literal, figurative and not literal, excuse me, without any real Adam and Eve, was there real sin? And is there a real need for salvation? And did Jesus really come to earth to die for our sins? So we need to figure out what the rule is then for interpreting other parts of scripture um, as either literal or allegory or figurative. So lastly, views on non-essential doctrines matter when we are called to reconcile them with the gospel. And I really can't explain this any better than what I've written here, so I'm going to read this. The gospel is the main thing, and what we don't know shouldn't be a stumbling block to the gospel that we do know. Non-essential doctrines matter more when we study them and consider the implications they have on the gospel. Is this a reason to avoid these kinds of issues? We're not called to a willful ignorance of everything outside the gospel. Thank God we only need to know a small amount of biblical truth to be made right with him. But we shouldn't go forward content with a small amount of knowledge. Ephesians 4.15 says we are to grow up in all aspects of Christ. And Christ is enough, but the more we deepen our theology, the more confident and cohesive we can be. You know, we're more effective as apologists when the case is tight and all the pieces fit. So you may be fine without reconciling these things, but what about when someone asks you? Um, you know, this is, it can be a stumbling block for unbelievers. And um, David Silverman, the president of the American Atheists, sees adding allegory to Levitical commands, for example, uh, as evidence against theism in general. So it's affecting our ability to demonstrate consistency that we ought to be able to demonstrate. Um, so in your handout, there's more reading on these topics. Um, any questions on, on this so far?
Okay. Well, we'll move into a rather light topic. This is a specific question regarding the problem of evil. I don't pretty hefty topic to tackle the whole thing, but I believe this is a question that a lot of Christians ask. Okay, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? So as Christians, we understand our theology. Death comes from sin, okay? And uh, as a result of sin's curse on creation, we have evil and suffering in the world and calamity and so forth. Uh, we live in a good creation gone bad. But, you know, still the question is there. Why so much? You know, I mean, why can we be spared a little bit more pain, especially when we see extreme examples of suffering and news stories, war-torn nations, what we see on the news and uh, what we experience personally with, you know, children in illness and, and losing loved ones and so forth. So couldn't we have a little bit less, please? Um, this is uh, more or less a thought experiment that I'm going to bring you guys through, but I'm going to ask you to consider, would you be content with 50% of the current amount of evil and suffering in the world? So if the amount of evil and suffering in the world were half of what it is, would you be okay with it? No? Uh, I think, uh, you know, I think if all of a sudden from one week to the next you notice uh, half as much crime going on, uh, the weather's improved twice as much, you might be thankful for that and notice, hey, wow, things are really looking up. But I think eventually we're going to get back to a dissatisfaction the way things are. Uh, and this is just a graphic to kind of illustrate that. This is all the evil and suffering in the world in a headline sort of montage, but we're bringing in, we see uh, half as much, we see just as much. So let's go down 10%. Would you be content with 10% of the current amount of suffering and evil in the world? So what if it was one-tenth? You have, you know, maybe one out of every 10 days something bad happens instead of, you know, the normal something goes wrong every day pretty much in our lives. Or maybe one, uh, one out of every 10 people you meet has, has some real struggles and trials in their lives. I think we would still answer no. Let's take it down to a 1%. Go crazy. Would you be content with 1% of the current amount of evil and suffering in the world? I think the the smaller we get, the more things come into view also. Um, you know, why God, this entire countryside was spared this hurricane and this one village was buried. Or, you know, I don't know anybody personally who's, who's had a you know, horrible accident, but I heard this on the news, this child that, that died in this car wreck. And, you know, that doesn't happen, Lord. Why? You don't normally operate that way. Why did... You know, why am I 90 years old in perfect health my whole life and now I get cancer? You know, why? I think we still look toward the, the heavens with that question. So we're not satisfied. I don't, I don't think we'd be satisfied with any amount of evil and suffering. And uh, the truth is God isn't satisfied either. One sin was too much. And we read in uh, Romans 5, 12 through 17, sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So one Savior was enough. One Savior who endured the cross for us, who endured suffering, who knows what we went through. We also have to consider the truth that uh, we don't know how much more evil and suffering there would be in the world without the restraining hand of God. If God weren't intervening in our daily lives, which I believe he is, it could be, it most definitely would be a lot worse. So this is the question from the unbeliever, from the atheist, and it's a question that keeps, or the non-answer that they get perhaps that keeps a lot of people from moving into faith, into embracing the idea of a good God. Why is there any evil and suffering in the world? And when we think about this, this is called a theodicy. It's the uh, practice of defending God's goodness in the face of evil. The answer that you're always going to have to repeat for an unbeliever is sin, is the presence of sin in the world, and we reviewed this in Romans 5. But for the atheist or eternal skeptic not engaged in any religion or the belief in God, you're not going to want to even talk about sin. So you're always going to have to reintroduce that into the conversation as a reason. The truth is we live in a good world gone bad. It's tainted by sin, and we suffer because of it. Also, free will means freedom to choose good or evil. God did not create amoral robots. You've heard that before, no doubt. He gave us a free will to choose. And with that, we choose good or we choose evil. And so God preventing our sinful choice means he prevents our freedom. We're not free to choose good or evil. We're not free. And the more sin that he removes, essentially the more freedom he removes, and how much freedom would we be willing to do without? One more thought experiment. And this was fun. What would it look like? I mean, surely God is all-powerful, and he can prevent us from sinning. He could miraculously intervene and stop sin. He could do this. But what would this look like? Okay, a lot of people have asked us, why doesn't God just stop it? Well, here's a, kind of a practical view, in my estimation, of what that would look like. Okay, nothing short of insanity. Uh, suppose you're walking along and you've determined to do some sin, and you're in a place, you're about to do it, God changes your mind about the sin you're about to do. So you forgot what you were going to do, and all of a sudden you're thinking something else. Or he removes you from that place where you were going to sin, and you wake up in a different place. And how many times a day would this happen to you? Okay. I think I'd be constantly waking up in a different place. Okay, we know that sin comes from desire. Could he take away our desire? I mean, I don't know if we'd be on board with that. Um, maybe go, go, go further to the root of, of the situation. Take away the temptation, okay, that leads to, you know, a certain situation where our desires can be tur turned into sin. Well, what couldn't be considered a temptation? Or what person or thing could not serve as a temptation in our lives? So... Um, that really would not leave anything for us or anybody. So I would suggest that we would be in a world without people, without things, without memory, without freedom, and probably without sanity. It's some kind of 
nightmarish matrix kind of situation. So the problem of pain <coughs> has two kinds of answers. I believe C.S. Lewis explored this too. One is an intellectual answer. The kind of thing that we've been talking about a little bit tonight is the logical answer that finite minds simply cannot comprehend completely the infinite. Uh, there's no way we should expect to completely understand the mind of God. God has a plan for each one of us that sometimes involves trials and suffering. And, um, you know, we don't know why. And I liken this to a illustration of a three-year-old that thinks he needs a second cookie before dinner and or needs to chase his favorite ball into the street. Now the parent stops him from both of those things. And to the kid, this is the most unfair thing in the world. Um, but he is unable to see the plan for that child's good. Sometimes um, I think I'm a three-year-old that way. Their answer to give is, is not an intellectual answer. It's the answer that you give to someone who is in a trial, who has lost a loved one, who is experiencing pain. And they don't need an intellectual answer right now. They don't need the logical answer. They need someone to be with them. They need someone to listen. And the way to demonstrate that God is in us with our pain is by you being with that person. Um, God says he promises us in Matthew that uh, he'll be with us till the end of time. And in Acts 17, God is not far from each one of us. And he suffered and he died for us. And he knows our pain through Christ. So God is with us and our pain is the truth that we need to convey in that situation. Creation groans, but God reigns. Creation us and everything in it affected by the fall waits in eager expectation for a day of redemption, according to Romans. But God reigns. We know that God is on his throne in the midst of pain and suffering. So that pretty much brings it to a conclusion. Um, kind of hope that this hasn't been like drinking from a fire hydrant, which is a quote from apologist Ravi Zacharias, but thank you, all of you who've been here. Um, thanks for the Mary and the food staff and childcare crew upstairs and Mark for inviting me to co-teach this series. Um, I want to close with um, just a thought. You know, I love Christian testimonies. We all love to hear them. I think there's great value in the testimony of an atheist or someone who has walked away from the faith because they tell us why. And very often, it's the problem of pain or some question that they have, big questions like this that they don't get an answer for. There's a football player uh, running back for the Houston Texans, which when did they change from the Oilers? Is that a recent thing? OK. All right. So yeah, Alex knew that. I bet you knew that. Uh, Arian Foster is an atheist, and when he came out with this information to his father, his father's advice was, go find your truth, which is another way of saying, go make up your truth. And that kind of instilled a lifestyle of atheism for him, because he couldn't get the answers about faith from his, you know, someone he trusted. And so I hope that all of us can aspire to be someone that is able to give the answers, not that this means we have the answers right away upon the asking, but that we're willing to go and get them and come back and be the one 
that someone goes to, be the Christian that someone goes to uh, for answers like this. Arian Foster has a teammate who is a son of a preacher man, a Christian, and he's uh, developed a relationship with Arian. According to Arian's uh, words, as an atheist, he's probably one of the few Christians that um, you know, he feels like he can talk to that's not condemning him and who's salt and light in his world. Um, so when it comes to being prepared to have a defense of the faith, as 1 Peter 3.15 calls us to do, we need to do it with gentleness and respect. Yeah, I just want to encourage you guys in that way. We've recorded these sessions, so they'll be available online in a few days. And uh, I think Mark and I will probably be around for a little bit if there's any other questions. Um, it looks like we're right out of time. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, um, just thank you for this time. And we thank you that we can reason about our faith. Um, we thank you for the faith that you've given each one of us in your Holy Spirit that has drawn each one of us to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and a uh, reason to talk about uh, what we've been discussing here tonight. So we thank you for that reason that's behind it. And we thank you for the craziness that's behind it, too, in, in a God that loves us so much. He sent his son to redeem us in this crazy world and from our own sin. And we just thank you for that. And may we um, go forward and be encouraged. Thank you for uh, what Mark has taught us tonight from uh, what we see in your word uh, that is truth. And the truth has a name, and it's Jesus Christ. And this is his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.